so we're going to be speaking this morning next in, uh, in our uh, Exodus series. It's been a great series so far. Uh, and we notice through this book more and more that God is revealing himself to his people. He's revealing himself to, to his people that they might understand what they're to look like. We'll come on to that a little bit more later. Um, and this morning we're seeing the God who loves justice. Okay, so we're talking about justice this morning. God who loves justice. We're going to be in chapter 21, and while you're all turning there in the Bibles that you have brought with you, I will uh, uh, just take the opportunity to share about how we talked about life groups just now, and uh, life groups, um, we're going to start the next term at the beginning of May, and uh, that uh, proposal page opens today. So if you're a, a life group leader, or you have been, or if you've never been one before, you can propose a group that you think you might like to lead in the next term, starting from today. You should find that page quite easily via our website. And um, uh, we'd love to get lots of proposals in. We'd love to get those proposals in before the end of this month so that we can really get ahead. May is admittedly quite a way away, uh, but we want to get ahead so that we really uh, know what we're doing. It's the warmer months of the year, so you may want to propose an outdoor group or something like that. Um, as we said before, life groups are really a big part of our church because they're an opportunity for us to be Christians in community, which is God's intention. We're not called to be Christians in isolation, but uh, God calls us to work out our salvation um, with others and to speak the truth in love to others and to uh, teach and admonish and to care for and pray for one another. So we want to do that. We want to give as much opportunity as we can to that. So we have the midweek groups. And I, I'm sure that many of you have really enjoyed what we've done this term, as we just mentioned. Okay, so we're in chapter 21, but before we um, uh, open lots of that, I'm going to read four verses to you from different books in the Bible. Uh, first one is from Genesis 1, 27. It says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And Psalm 89 says this, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Psalm 11 says, The Lord is righteous. He loves justice. And then where we are today, Exodus 21, verse 23 says this, But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, Foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So we're talking about God loving justice this morning. Justice being righteousness upheld. That's what justice is. Righteousness being upheld. God loves justice. We're going to see that today. God gets justice. And, <clears throat> excuse me. And we're going to look at trusting God for justice. Let me just pray before we <clears throat> move ahead. Father, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for your promised presence with us. Your promises are good. And we say yes and amen to them. Lord, we ask you, come to us by your Holy Spirit this morning as we open your word. And I pray, Holy Spirit, open our eyes and ears to what you would have us to receive this morning. We pray you take us on from one degree of glory to another this morning as we understand more of the heart of God. Let us be warmed to it. Lord, let us be encouraged by it. Let us revere it rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. So last week, uh, Tom wonderfully really took us through how uh, God had given the Ten Commandments to this people that had been brought out of slavery. And uh, now God wanted to give them a foundation to give them an identity. Okay, this is now the society that you're going to be. You're going to be this society that is founded on actually commandments that reveal and reflect me. They're what I'm like. They're who I am. And so we heard last week wonderfully that uh, God said to them in Exodus 19, um, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, if you will, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. All the earth is mine, but you will be my treasured possession. And he goes on to say there, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God's saying, if you keep my commands now, you will be. And, and Tom took us through to the new covenant, where Peter says this, to those who have received Jesus as their saviour, to those who have put their trust in him for the forgiveness of sins, and those that call him Lord and Saviour, this is now true. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You are now that. Christ has achieved it for you. You have won that. He's won that for you in his death and resurrection. But then the next three words are so important. It says this, that you may. As Tom spoke to us last week, not just saved from, saved to. Not just freed from, freed to. Freed for, given meaning, given identity. God has taken us not just out of, but brought us into himself. That we would have meaning, that we would have life. This context is that these slaves have been freed by God, brought out of oppressive slavery by a rescuer God, a God of love and compassion who has won them for himself. And as we said, we're seeing through this book more and more about what this God is like. But it, it could be a little bit like this. They've, they've seen the, dead, sorry, the Red Sea behind them crash down on their enemies and they celebrate, yes! And then as they turn, they see, oh, wilderness. What next? Who, who are we? What are we supposed to do next? And God says, okay, I've got a foundation for you. I'm going to give you a rock to build on. And as we hear from Jesus in the New Testament, one who hears my words and does them is like one who builds his house on a rock. And God's saying, I'm giving you a foundation. I'm going to give you a foundation to build your society on. One psychologist lecturer was <clears throat> making a point about freedom. And he asked his students a question. He said, do you want to play a game? And they say, yeah. And he says, okay, your turn. They, they, what, what, what? And he's making a point that completely unattached, unaccountable freedom with no parameters, no regulations, it's not actually life-giving. We're not made to be completely autonomous to our own whims. It's actually meaningless. The freedom that God has brought, from, sorry, brought his people into is not empty. It's not void. It's not meaningless. It doesn't leave us paralyzed. No, it's freedom from and freedom to. Freedom from what? Freedom to what? Sorry. Freedom to, it says in the next part of Peter, declare the praises of him 
who brought you out of darkness into his wonderful light. God has won for himself a people that might declare his praises. What does that mean? What we've just been doing, we've just been praising. Yes, it means that. I'm declaring, does it mean teaching and sharing the gospel? Yes, it means that. But declaring his praises to the world means everything. It means our whole life that God would have for himself a people that would reveal who he is to the world. That would say to the world, this is what God is like. And so we have to... We have to reflect him. That's what he's called us to. To declare his praises by saying, okay, what's he like? How would he have us behave? How would he have us respond to certain situations? He would have us uphold righteousness. He's a righteous God and he loves it being upheld. He loves justice. So this is part of God's desire for his people that we might be called out that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. These people, they've never before been a nation on their own. The ones alive at that moment. They started as a, as a family of 70 or so, a very big extended family brought into Egypt. 400 years of, of breeding like bunnies. They're now, they're now 2 million or so. They've been brought out of slavery but they don't have foundation. They don't know who they are. All they've known is injustice. Everything they've known has been unjust. It's been slavery. It's been abuse. It's not been full life. It's been a half life. And God wants to bring them into life. This is the kind of God he is. He's given them, therefore, these foundations that we heard about last week. And then I want to help you to see that chapters, the end of chapter 20, chapter 21, 22, 23, they are the expounding, the opening up of the Ten Commandments. So we can read these and we can find them quite bizarre. We'll have a look at some of them in a minute. You think, what on earth? Where is that? It helps to understand they're related to the Ten Commandments. They are being opened up for the context that they live in. So the foundations he gives them are righteousness, his standards of what is right and what is wrong. God gets to decide what is right and what is wrong. He cares about certain things, and they reflect what he is like. The Lord is righteous. He loves justice. So that's the first, if you want to take notes, the first point is God loves justice. He says, you're going to be a holy nation. You're going to be set apart. You're going to be different. You're going to be mine. You're going to show the world what I look like. But as we look at chapters 21 to 23 with our 21st century eyes, we can be quite confused. We can struggle. Now, I'm a Bible-believing man. We're a Bible-believing church. And I hold very highly the belief that the Bible is inerrant. It is the inerrant word of God. It doesn't have errors in it. It's authoritative. I believe what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, that it is breathed out by God. It is a holy, righteous book. And I believe many of us in the room are on the same page on that. And yet when it comes to passages like the ones we're looking at today, we find ourselves baffled, confused, even embarrassed, and maybe even offended by what we read. But we wouldn't feel free to say it's wrong. So we just think, I don't know what to do. So it's worth having a look at a a few of these just to help us. What about starting with uh, reacting with a bit of confusion? Well, if you look at chapter 23, 18 to 19, 
you see these verses. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. And then it goes on to say, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Wow, so foundational. You know, as God is setting out, this is what is important. These are the foundational important things for us. We can think, why on earth is that foundational? What has that got to do with anything? What does it mean? And we can just find ourselves just confused. And it's so helpful that we have scholars and historians to help us with some of this because every one of the things in these chapters is so, uh, it's not easy to understand, it is, it is possible to understand in light of information. So, if I just plainly tell you that boiling a young goat in its mother's milk is linked to pagan worship, you think, ah, oh, okay. Because he says in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt have no other gods above me. Ah, okay, well, in that sense, they were, they were worshipping in a pagan way. He, he doesn't want, ah, okay, it makes sense. And there's many things like that that we can open up. I'm not going to go through, there are just so many in there. There are other things in there that are lost contextually. What does it mean to us? We don't know because lots of these commands apply to an agrarian culture. We might live in Suffolk, but we don't all own oxen and sheep. We're not all digging holes in fields and burning fields with fire of grain, uh, burning grain with fire. And these things, we just think, why is this so important to God? And yet, if you look into these chapters and you read them, you will see, you do get a sense of, I can see some of the heart of God coming through these things, a heart of justice. Things matter to God. So if an oxen kills somebody, it's not just, oh, well, what will be will be. What can you do? No, God says, no, something's, someone's got to be held responsible. There's got to be accountability. We're not animals. We are made in the image of God. It matters what happens. God, God cares about right and wrong. And so as we look through some of these things, we see actually it's wonderful that God would say, hey, if this happens, something needs to be done about it. God cares about righteousness. So we may be confused, but I would encourage you there are answers. The second thing is we might be offended. It seems wrong, some of the things in here. And particularly, it's worth taking a few minutes to look at chapter 21, where it talks about slavery. And it seems to talk about slavery in positive terms. Is God pro-slavery? Is the Bible pro-slavery? Well, I can, I can clearly tell you that God is not pro-slavery. This this, these words are written in the book of Exodus, which is, means walking out of, coming out of, coming out of what? Slavery. God is a God who wants to free people. From slavery. In fact, in Exodus uh, 21:16, it gives the death penalty for someone who takes a person into their possession by force or without agreement. This is not the kind of slavery that it's referring to in, 20, in chapter 21 that we would be aware of, and that, the, that they have just been at the hands of the Egyptians for 400 years. Firstly, it's not people group based. It's not about people groups as we might have horribly seen in our history. The word slave is understandably very difficult for us to see in a positive light, but it is talking about someone who gives themselves into employment to another or is placed into employment, but 
God wants to make sure there are provisos and clear agreements for safety and for dignity. It's actually the other way around from saying, he's pro-safety, no, he's, he's pro-safety, dignity, righteousness, justice. He's pro-making sure that people are not treated the way that the Hebrews have just been treated by the Egyptians. So a slave in this society is someone who has made a contract with an employer because they cannot pay off a debt, for instance, and they need to work it off. Or some of the wording is so foreign to us, though, that it, it looks offensive. Our, our imaginations run riot. But in modern day, you might think of someone who conscripts themselves to the military. Okay, They are, they are uh, voluntarily conscripted, but they have been given a contract. They're told where to live, what to do, where to go, but they're also compensated. They've been given housing and provisions, and it is time-limited. It's not limitless. No, you're going to have a contract for this amount of time. And for many people, it is their route out of poverty. So maybe similar to that would be a helpful way of looking at it. But I want you to, to get the point here. Essentially, these commands are saying to the Israelites, do not treat servants the way you were treated in Egypt. The point being, that was evil. Slavery is evil in God's eyes. And there is also something of a link here to a God who is saying, you're my possession. I have you as a possession. You might think you have servants as possessions. But the whole point here is I want you to treat people as I treat people. I want you to see what I'm like, and I want that to be reflected. You're my possession, but you're my treasured possession. And so when God says, if you have people that you might think of as your possession, don't treat them as slaves. They're treasures. Dignity is upheld and righteousness is upheld. If you, if you want to look a bit more into what the Bible says about slavery, I'd encourage you to look at Peter Williams on YouTube. There's some great lectures. You might want to look a bit further into this. If this has been a bit of a stumbling block for you, or if you've got a friend who you want to invite to church and they say, I'm not going to church. Have you seen what it says? It'd be great to equip yourself with answers. Go and have a look a bit more about that. Peter Williams on YouTube. Okay, so the next thing is that sometimes we could be offended because some of these things, they just seem extreme. They just seem extreme. If a child strikes his parent or, or a child curses his parent, they'll be put to death. Whoa, that seems extreme. And I don't think it just means, you know, we might hear a child getting angry with their parent or swearing at their parent. I think, no, again, I think it's caught up in occult practices and, and evil like that. But also it's helpful to see what Carl Truman says in his book. He says this, a society is defined by what it prohibits. And if we know that very much in our time, where we are now in a transitional phase of what is prohibited in our culture now. What was prohibited that no longer is? What is prohibited in schools that didn't used to be? Or in the workplace, what is not prohibited anymore? And we think, yeah, that really does define us as a culture. Other, other nations look on. They say, do you see what is now not prohibited or what is prohibited? So, so these, this, this sort of thing where it would say anyone who curses his mother or father must be put to death, it's from a society that take very seriously and from a God who takes very seriously honoring your father and mother. It's worth noticing that. He takes it very seriously. It's at odds with our enlightened society where we think, no, we've moved on from that. That's over the top. And sometimes we can think we're morally, more morally upright than righteous God. 
No, God, no, you, you're, you're over the top. No, we've got it right here. And sometimes we need to recognize, no, this is the God of righteousness. And he cares about justice. So we can be a bit confused sometimes. We can even be offended. But hopefully as you read through these, you'll also be delighted. You'll also be encouraged as you see, I'm reminded that God cares. He cares what matters. He cares about righteousness being upheld. He cares about what is right and wrong. And it can strengthen our resolve to uphold righteousness. Justice matters to God. So he gives these principles and he gives these cases that help the Israelites understand how to apply the Ten Commandments. How to apply them in their context with their oxen and their sheep and their fields. What happens if an accident happens? What happens if, if somebody purposefully hurts somebody? What happens if someone's mistreated? Something must happen because there must be accountability. It matters. We're not just animals. We're made in the image of God. Righteousness matters. And God commands that people treat people with dignity and within the safety and accountability of a justice system. He cares about justice because he cares about righteousness and he cares about people. So we see this is a big deal to him. And for you, you might think that's music to my ears because you may have found yourself at the hands of injustice. You may have found yourself, whether small things, where you just think that wasn't fair, I got accused of that. You know, I moved on, that wasn't a big deal. Or maybe huge things where you've been swindled out of thousands of pounds or something. You think, it's not right, it's not okay. Or a family member of yours or your own story is that you've been abused. It's not okay, the person just got away with it. Justice matters, things matter, people matter, right and wrong matters. And it can be encouraging to us to know it matters to God. But it might be your story. But even if it's not your story, you can look out there. You don't have to look far to see we live in a terribly unjust society where people are left in positions of weakness at the mercy of the powerful, at the mercy of the, the, the wealthy, where righteousness is shouted down and aggressively lied about. People literally sort of picking up from the, from the column, from the category of righteous and taking over to place it in evil and saying, you thought that was righteous, we say it's evil now. People picking up things from the evil categories saying, no, we say that's righteous now. I think, what? What is going on? And God's not okay. God doesn't just look on and say, well, what can you do? God loves justice. He's a God of justice. And he moves Injustice. We live in we live in a time where people claim to be virtuous with their aggressive lies, where people often want to do what looks good because then they can post it online to benefit their own profile, take advantage of a vulnerable situation, where things like logic and even scientific fact is aggressively opposed with threats of retribution. Don't you dare say that now. But it's scientific facts, don't you dare. And you, you can be bullied in situations. It's just not just. Righteousness is not prevailing. And I'm sick of it. Aren't you sick of it? I'm absolutely sick of it. I'm not okay with it. And more importantly, God is not okay with it. The vulnerable being abused and trampled on and taken advantage of. The poor getting poorer. People being tricked by schemes that might rob them of savings. Human beings being trafficked not right. 
babies being murdered. I hate it, and I should hate it, because I'm made in the image of a God who hates it. And many of us, we just think, well, what do you do? What can we do? What can we do? But it's encouraging that the one enthroned and reigning in sovereign power is the one who loves righteousness and hates injustice. His way is that the guilty are to be held responsible and the innocent are to be protected from being made responsible for things they're not responsible for. The answer is not just to be overwhelmed or throw the towel in. It's so sad, a few weeks ago, chatting to a Christian friend, and he'd been wronged, and he's trying to have a good attitude, trying to be mature. He said, it doesn't really matter, does it? I thought, it does matter. But we can sometimes think, I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to not fuss, I'm supposed to not moan, I'm deeply hurt, but I'm supposed to just not moan. That's not, that's not the heart of God. He cares about you. He cares about justice being served. He cares about righteousness being upheld. And when we say, no, it doesn't really matter, we say righteousness doesn't matter. And we actually say, I don't really matter. And none of those could be further from the truth. Righteousness matters to God. People matter to God. And secondly, we want to move on to God will have his justice. God gets justice. We want justice, right? It's right that we, <clears throat> we want justice. Someone who has been greatly wronged might say, I want justice. They might even say, I want blood. And the thing is, it's a bit difficult for us in this, is we want a God of justice, but we really, really want a God of mercy. Because none of us have been able to uphold perfect righteousness. None of us have not fallen short of God's standards. We might love justice to be upheld when we're on the receiving end of injustice, but what about our failure to uphold righteousness? We owe blood. And God is a righteous judge. God is a righteous judge. If he were just to say, we'll let it slide, we'll brush it under the carpet, it's completely unjust. He can't stand for that. He can't just do that. It would make him an unjust judge. It would make him a complete lie. No, he's a God of justice. It would be unthinkable to him to just let things slide. And the problem is God is primarily the one at the receiving end of unrighteousness. He is primarily the one who set the target. That's what the word sin means. It came from archery. It means missing the target. Every sin even if it's against another, it's a sin first against the one who set the target. At first, we offend God. He is the one who is primarily on the end of unrighteousness. And it makes him angry, rightly so. We've looked at that today. It's not okay with some of the things that go on. And some of them we've got used to, and we think, what can you do? God doesn't say, what can you do? He sits on a throne in righteousness. For eternity, ancient of days, never saying, I'll let that one slide. He can't. He can't let it slide. It would make him unrighteous. It would make him unjust. And so God is perfectly just, and, and sin makes him angry. And that should be a comfort to us, because he's not okay with the sin that you have been at the receiving end of. 
when you think, well, what does it matter? I'm just, I'm just a worm. No, you're not. You're a man or a woman made in God's image. He cares about what's happened against you. But it should also, it comforts us that he cares about what's happened to us. It should also make us tremble that he cares about what we've done. I'm sure some of you are sitting there thinking, yeah, this isn't comfortable. But because God is holy, good, and just, he cannot only, sorry, he not only feels angry about sin, but he also deals with it in a way that is good and holy and just. Because God is good and holy and just, he not only feels angry about sin, he deals with it in a way that is good and holy and just. Right from the beginning, right from when Adam and Eve turned away from God and chose unrighteousness, chose to go their own way, God, in his mercy and his kindness, didn't just wipe them out. But he covered their sin. He covered their shame. How did he do that? He covered them with the skins of animals. So blood had to be shed to cover their shame. And God, throughout the Old Testament, set up a sacrificial system where blood would be shed. And people would bring sacrifices to the temple that their sins may be atoned for because sin has to be dealt with. God is a righteous judge. He's not okay to just sweep things under, oh, I'm just a pushover, really. I'm just Santa in the sky, whatever you want. No. Righteous judge must be dealt with. So he mercifully set up a system where blood would be spilled for the sake of sin. And it would have, we, we, think, we, we think of these things, we don't think about them a lot. It would have been disgusting. The Day of Atonement would have been utterly filthy. The temple would have flowed with blood. It would have been flies everywhere. It would have been maggots. It would have been disgusting smell. And that's not lost because sin is a disgusting stench to God. It's, it's, this is the result of death. It was unbearable, but sin is unbearable to God. And the theme, of script, the theme of blood, sorry, in Scripture, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Like, like so many themes in Scripture, they find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. One time when his cousin saw him coming, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These other lambs that have been sacrificed for hundreds of years, they were not taking away the sin, they were they were atoning for it in that moment, but they were pointing to the one who would take away the sin of the world, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. The taking away of the world's sin was what would happen as a result of Jesus being slaughtered on a wooden cross where blood wouldn't just have been a thimbleful. He'd already been flogged. His his back was already in ribbons. He had a crown of thorns pushed into his head. He had nails driven through his arms and feet. The, the book of Isaiah says he barely even looked human anymore. The just God of heaven, the righteous one, blood flowed. It would have been disgusting. You wouldn't have looked at it. God loves you, he died for you on a cross. It's just gone. We don't even think about it. 
the righteous one of heaven who'd never, ever, ever even thought something sinful. Barely even human. Treated like an animal. We might say, I want blood. Well, God said, I, I want blood. I want blood. And Jesus owned this. He owned this. It says in Matthew 26. Now, when they were eating, Jesus took bread. After blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to the disciples and he said, take it, eat it. This is my body. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Mercy and justice meet at the cross. Mercy and justice meet at the cross. The cross is God's provision of justice for us. Jesus is God's provision of righteousness for us. The cross is his provision of justice, being righteousness is upheld at the cross. Jesus goes the distance. Blood is shed. We want justice, rightly so. God upholds justice. If we don't want justice, we betray our image-bearing nature. We disintegrate into thinking we don't matter, nothing matters. It matters. It matters that God himself would go that far. And terrifyingly, but rightly, there will be blood one way or another. For those who have sinned against you, they will encounter the, the just judge one day. And he will either pour his wrath out on them, or if they are someone who has found forgiveness in Jesus Christ, wonderfully, they will know God's wrath has already been poured out on Jesus for their sake. If you're someone who doesn't know Jesus yet, if some, you're someone in the room today who hasn't found forgiveness in Jesus, hasn't, hasn't jumped off and said, okay, I'm all in, then today you can find Jesus to be your freedom from the wrath of God that is coming at you because justice must be served. Otherwise, he's not God. He's an unjust judge, but actually he's a just and holy judge, but he is merciful. He said, if you come to me, I'll pay for this for you. I will be your provision of righteousness. Justice is served one way or another. And so thirdly, we need to trust God for justice. Trusting God for justice. As we consider the cost of the mercy we have received while Jesus Sorry, while justice was upheld and God's wrath for sin was satisfied, it should cause us to extend mercy. We consider his wrath was satisfied that was aimed at me. Jesus comes, stood in the way. He shielded me from it. He took all the wrath of God on himself. I should be stirred to a heart of mercy, extending mercy that I have received, trusting that actually the just judge will judge rightly. 1 Peter 2, 23 says this of Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. We need to follow that. When justice doesn't seem evident, and you think, but it doesn't come. It doesn't seem to come. I need justice. We need to entrust ourselves to the one who will judge justly and perfectly. 
absolutely perfectly. And in this life, we must stand up for righteousness. We must stand up for righteousness, for what is right. For what is right, not just about me getting my way, not just about me getting my kicks. No, not at all. Fight for what is right. It's clear in these chapters, in chapter 23, verse 2 to 5, it's clear that God wants impartial justice. Don't be swayed by emotions. Don't let your emotions keep you from what is right and true. Don't just do justice for those on your team, on your tribe, on those on your side. No, love your enemies. Let me read these verses, chapter 23, 2 to 5. You shall not follow the crowd in wrongdoing. When you testify in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. Do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. Don't get emotional about it. You've got to stick with what is right and what is wrong. If you encounter your enemy's stray ox or donkey, you must return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you fallen under its load, do not leave it there. You must help him with it. God wants justice. He wants righteousness to be upheld. Not that we would just say, well, that doesn't benefit me. No, it's worship. It's right. We follow him and his ways and his righteousness, and we, we uphold humanity. Because as humanity descends into unrighteousness, it's less human. It doesn't reflect God. God wants us to uphold this image of who he is and what he's done. And perhaps you are stuck yourself in an unjust situation. I just want to finish really with this. If you're, if you're stuck in an unjust situation, then, then Jesus' parable of the persistent widow is, is about injustice. And sometimes we just think it's about prayer. And yes, it's about prayer, but it's also about injustice. It says this in Luke 18. It says this, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Okay, don't lose heart. You think, it's unjust. I don't get any justice. Where's the justice? I'll lose heart. No, don't lose heart. He said, In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect? Who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now listen to this. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? How often do you pray for justice? How often are you praying for justice in Ipswich? Praying for justice in this nation? Praying for justice for yourself? God's saying, this is, am I going to come and find people in pain? In unjust situations? Because you haven't trusted me. I want to act for you. I want you to call on me. I'll be swift. We can, just, we can just give in to, well, what can you do? You can do. You've got a God who is the God of justice. The God who wants up rightness, righteousness upheld. That's, that's his heart. He's telling that to the Israelites. You want to reflect me. I'm a God of justice. I want right to be remaining right. I want wrong to remain wrong. 
And when you see it in your life and your heart is broken by it, don't just think, what do you do? God's saying, I told you what to do. If an unrighteous judge would eventually give in, how much more would the God of justice want to say to you, yeah, I'll move swiftly for you. We want, we want justice, right? I so want justice in this nation. Some of the ridiculous things that are happening. Some of them are comically ridiculous. Some of them are disgusting. People must be protected from, from unrighteousness. Must be protected. And we need to pray to the God of justice. The God who is so committed to justice that he would say, I'll give of myself to make sure Righteousness is upheld. I'll provide righteousness that you cannot meet. So you can actually be free to reflect my grace and my mercy, but also my righteousness. Sometimes we can get held in this wrong thinking as Christians to think, well, we're a grace-driven movement. That kind of means do what you want, do what you want, it's covered. That's not I brought you out of, into. That's just I brought you out of to be an idiot. I brought you out to be righteous, to reflect who I am. Don't be content to just say it's grace, isn't it? It's a laugh. No. It's the cross. It's not a laugh. It's not a laugh. It's paid for that you might live. So we want to live righteous lives and we want to call people to righteousness. We want to fight for righteousness. And we want to see there's provision made for me to forgive when I see, but that was unrighteous. I say, yeah, I, I, can, I can forgive. God forgave me. It cost a lot. Blood has been spilled. If that person apologizes to me, if that person is a believer in particular, I know blood has been spilled for their sin. I can, I can forgive. I want to invite the band to come up. and it's just We want to sing of the cross this morning. We're going to have communion together and just recognize, God, where would we be without your carrying out of justice for our sake? We're not having to watch our step and watch our back. Is he going to get me? No, it's been paid for. But I want to walk in righteousness. It's life. So I'm going to pray for us. Father, we thank you. Lord, how can we, how can we be flippant about life? How can we be flippant about righteousness when you have gone to such, such lengths, at such a cost to make sure it's been upheld? I do pray you help us to be a people who are amazed at the cross. Amazed for my sake, for my sake, barely human. Just doesn't, doesn't, I just overlook it so quickly. You've gone to such depths that I would be brought to such heights. Thank you, it's dealt with. I do pray, help us to be people who live in righteousness, uphold righteousness and glory in your grace. Glory in your mercy. Help us bring others to mercy. Help us bring others to grace. Oh Lord, we pray for our land. We do pray for justice in our nation where things are wrong. They're just wrong. They do not uphold your right standards. Pray God of justice, bring justice in our nation. Help us to return to righteousness. Help us where we just think we can make our own definitions. We can make our own boundaries. We can decide what's right and wrong. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us and lead us to righteousness. Restore 
us to righteousness. I pray for brothers and sisters in the room who are currently in in, uh, situations that are unjust. Oh God, bring justice. Bring justice. Protect. Move swiftly. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.